episode 138, A Science-Based Strategy for Patient Engagement. Today, I speak with Andrea LaFontaine, PhD and CEO of Mindfield Solutions Corporation. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Here's something I never thought of before. We keep talking about evidence-based this and clinically validated that. We want to standardize care to enable teams to work together more efficiently and to continuously improve outcomes. But here's a carve-out with all that effort. We're really only talking about physiological aspects of care. We might have as part of our process to engage with the patient at some level, but it often ends there. We're not thinking about how to apply science to that interaction or to that engagement across populations. Dr. Andrea LaFontaine, CEO of Mindfield Solutions Corporation, is looking to change this. Dr. LaFontaine is also the author of How Patients Think, a Science-Based Strategy for Patient Engagement and Population Health. And you can get the book on Amazon. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Andrea. Thank you, Stacey. Let's talk about healthcare value, which is defined as better outcomes for lower costs. What are your thoughts on the matter coming from the lens that you are looking at this from? Well, when I look at the landscape of healthcare in the United States, I see that something's broken down, right? I mean, we have continuingly rising costs, but continuing sickness and our health is not getting better. So somewhere along the line, Stacey, we're, we're doing something wrong. And if you had to pinpoint, I'm sure it's one of those multivariate equations, but if you had to pinpoint what you think might be a primary driver in that escalating cost equation. I would say that as an industry, we have done a disservice in understanding patient decision-making and the patient's role in their own healthcare. What do you mean more specifically by patient decision-making? You know, can you narrow it down some? Yeah, well, there was a statement put out in the Journal of Clinical Oncology a few years ago by the editor, uh, Catherine Kahn at UCLA. She suggested that patient motivation is possibly the number one factor in determining health outcomes. So she went on to say that even if we develop new molecular entities, new drugs, uh, train more physicians, get more pharmacies, all of that, that we're not actually going to see any improvement in health unless we take a radical different view on the patient's role. So what I would like to see in this new approach to patient centricity is a fuller understanding of how patients are embracing their healthcare, um, the decisions that they make. Should I, should I treat a condition? Should I not? Should I take a prescription? Should I do surgery? Where do I go for my care? There's so much of the success in health outcomes sits in the hands of the patient 
And I don't think that we've just given it enough attention to help patients make those decisions. It's been said, I think, for several years now that patient engagement is the next killer product. How is this patient motivation and patient decision-making piece that you're talking about, is that different than patient education, which is continually bandied about? Or like, what's the fine point here? Well, I think the difference is getting into a more scientific understanding of the patient decision-making. That's the piece that hasn't happened yet. Yes, I agree that for a couple of decades, actually, that the 1970s was some of the earliest published work in patient adherence. And back then, it was very rudimentary. It was just getting patients to take the pills. Um, it has advanced a huge amount since then. And we talk, we don't even really talk about adherence anymore. We talk about engagement, the term that you used in getting patients to take more ownership and a more active role in their care. So we're definitely evolving, but where we haven't evolved to yet is bringing a scientific understanding of how patients are making those decisions. You know, the healthcare industry is thoroughly scientific in all other regards, in its diagnostic techniques, in its treatment modalities, in the duration of treatment, in balancing efficacy against side effects. The whole FDA approval of, of what we do is all very scientifically driven. However, when it comes to understanding patient decision-making, I think the industry is in very early days. It, it barely has even recognized that there is a science behind decision-making. So I think that's what's different moving forward is we still can call it patient engagement. We can call it patient participation. We can call it patient accountability and ownership. But whatever label we use to describe it, what we must do is bring the science forward so that people who are engaging with patients can actually work more scientifically, whether that be the providers, the payers, the pharmaceutical companies, pharmacists, telecoaching. Together, if we can bring a more scientific approach to how we engage with patients, I think that's where we're moving to now in healthcare. If we're talking about a disease, it's very tangible. You can see it. You can do a lab test and you can risk stratify based on labs. I could see that this sort of bringing a science to decision making, it's just it's a little more elusive in the sense of I can't do a lab test for it. What's the basis for what you're saying or when we're talking about adding science to decision making, what does that look like? Let's take, for example, a different aspect of, of psychology, personality testing. You know, most people now are familiar with the Myers-Briggs. It's a psychometric battery that you can administer to individuals and you get a fairly clear diagnostic of their personality type. Those kind of diagnostics are few and far between when it comes to patient engagement. We develop them at Mindfield Solutions uh, but you're, you're right. It still seems elusive just because it's not mainstream yet. I do believe that over the next decade, it will become mainstream. And as common as it is to run a Myers-Briggs in the occupational setting, I think it will be that common to run a cognitive diagnostic in the clinical setting. At least I hope it is because we have to get that serious 
in managing patient engagement. We cannot any longer just leave it floating as, as a, an elusive concept. It can be nailed down, it can be specified, and it can be structured in a very linear way, like the Myers-Briggs personality survey, or like a diagnostic assay on a lab test, which you know, gives us very precise details of what's going on in, say, a patient with diabetes. We can pull the same diagnostics at a cognitive level and see what's going on in a patient with diabetes in terms of how they think about their disease, their life, their health care, what they want to do. We certainly can take out the mystery and the um, subjectivity and make clean, objective, proven mathematical diagnostics of patient engagement and how they think. I definitely want to get into the how of this and what that process looks like. But let's just talk about the WIFM for a moment. So if you can do this, if you can risk stratify based on what a patient may or may not do and do all the things that you just said, what's the result? Like, why should a provider organization or nothing for nothing, but any healthcare stakeholder do this? Sure. Well, let's take, for example, in diabetes, there's published data out there that as patients become more engaged in their disease management, there's a huge cost savings, which typically the bulk of that will go to the payer or the employers that the the payers are covering. We've run a simulation, for example, that just with 10% more engagement across Medicare, there's a $3 billion per annum savings just in the core care for diabetes. So that's the whiffing for the, the folks who are picking up the tab, whether it be the employer, the payer, or the government through Medicare, Medicaid programs. When patients are actively engaged, their health care is better, they have improved outcomes, and that has a dramatic impact on the cost of care. What does engagement mean? You said a 10% lift in engagement. What is the measure there? For that case study that I gave you, it's, it's basically prescription volume. Now, we know in diabetes, engagement must include more than taking your medications. That in and of itself isn't enough. But just by doing that, that's what translates into the $3 billion savings for Medicare. You've got some secret sauce, which we're going to dip into in a moment here. But vis-a-vis that process that you implemented, you got 10% more people to take their medication, which resulted in that level of outcomes improvement, which obviously has revenue ramifications. Correct. Yes. All right. So let's talk about maybe in that diabetes example, kind of step us through this. How are you making this happen? You mentioned before, Stacey, risk stratification. So that's the the first place where it needs to to happen. So we can do our cognitive profiles or our cognitive diagnostics. And with that, we can understand whether, and I'll switch to the Myers-Briggs, whether we're talking with an ENTP or an ENTJ, the classic, you know, profiles of, of personalities. Now, it's different types of profiles when we're talking about engagement with healthcare, but nonetheless, we can sort them out into type A, type B, type C. And depending on how the patient profiles, 
we know what their barriers are to engagement or what are the motivational elements that they're missing or where is their concept of healthcare different to what we know is required to actually achieve good health outcomes. So I'll give you just a specific example in diabetes. One of the predictors is if somebody profiles as managing to logistics versus another patient can profile as managing to outcomes. And what I mean by that is if they're managing to outcomes, that's a good thing. They have a mindset that it's important for them that their numbers are looking good, their A1C is under control, versus the managing to logistics, they are um, in danger of not being able to achieve health outcomes. And the way they look to a provider, physician, is they show up every three months at their regularly scheduled visits. They fill their prescriptions. They monitor their blood every morning. They're very diligent in doing that. And they even take their insulin every day. So long as they accomplish the logistics of it, they consider that they are a good patient and they will tell you they are a good patient, that they never miss a doctor's appointment and they always take their meds. However, their glucose is way out of control. And for them, that is not so much of an issue. They believe that if I do the uh, mechanics of disease management, I'm okay. And they've actually taken their eye off the prize, which is the outcome that you're trying to get to through those mechanics. So we can see that in a cognitive profile. We can provide the physician with those reviews and say, okay, this patient A or Mary Smith, she's managing to the logistics. You need to help her understand that the logistics are not the end goal. They are the means to the end. The end is glucose control or a healthier living or the ability to be around to see my grandkids grow up. The physician now is informed and what the appropriate conversation or messaging needs to be to Mary Smith. Meanwhile, his other patient who's managing to the outcomes, he can see that too and he can congratulate her saying you're doing a, a great job, you're under control, you've got the right mindset, keep it up. Go back to the risk stratification and, the, and that profiling piece of that. How does that transpire in clinic? Is it outside of, so someone hires Minefield and you handle this aspect for them? They give you a patient roster and then you make phone calls or does it go on in clinic? It takes five minutes and prior to walking in the exam room, you know, you get this done. It's more like the latter that you mentioned. So it's live at the point of care. It, it, right now, what we find our clients prefer is uh, an iPad. So it's an independent device that when they check in to the reception for their appointment, the receptionist can give them the iPad. It takes 30 to 40 seconds to tap through the various questions. And the profile then is available right there for the physician to look at. The sixth vital sign for the physician. Wow. So in 30 to 40 seconds, you can manage to get enough information from a patient to be able to stick them in a specific profile? Right. And see, if you ask the right questions, you can do it very quickly. So now this information is available. How does the clinician know what to do with it? Like, is there a training program? Like, what's involved in being able to effectively use this insight to affect behavior change? For a physician practice, it's exactly that, training the physician or 
uh, training diabetic nurse educators, different places manage the education differently. Other clinics have classroom type environments where newly diagnosed diabetics come together once a month and it can be part of that training. Again, it's a train the trainer to the diabetic nurse educator. Or for those payer groups that are looking at telecoaching, it can be scripted into the teleprompting system so that the coaches are actually using a script in front of them on their screen, which is tailored to depending how the patient profiles. How do you train a nurse educator or a physician or a care extender to have the kinds of conversations that you just, you know, we kind of role played at the earlier in, in this conversation? You know, like, how do you teach a care extender, what are you telling them that, that's going to enable them to pull this off? We'll use that same diabetes example of if somebody was profiled as managing to the logistics, we know now that this is a risk patient and we have to change their mindset. Now, in, in my field, we would call that cognitive restructuring is the, the technical term for it, where we're actually making a real shift in their process of decision making. A lot of nurses are familiar with this kind of um, counseling psychology anyway, and we find that nurses actually love what we do. It's hearkening back to their training days themselves. We would work with the nurses to say, okay, if somebody presents to you as managing to the logistics, here's where we want to get them. We want to get them to thinking of the outcomes. Why do they go through the motions? There must be a reason to believe in that. What is their reason to believe? And help the patient talk through to get to that reason to believe. Is it because, you know, they have a retirement wish list and they want to go on a safari? Um, is that something that's driving them? And is that why we can now frame, let's get your diabetes under control and you can do the things that you want to do in life. Nurses are very adept at having those types of conversations of, it's more the, the bedside approach, you know, how does it fit into your day-to-day -day life as well? Who are they as a patient? What are they thinking now? And the nurse is now equipped with some basic information that they can align with the patient. You know, they don't have to probe too far with the patient, which current methods, they're losing the patient, right? It's like telling a smoker that smoking is bad for you. That's irrelevant. Or telling a smoker that they should quit. That's also irrelevant. They, they already know all of that. In fact, they're so sick of hearing it, it shuts them down. But if you engage with a patient in terms of how they're already thinking, so you could say, you know, to, to Mary Smith, look, Mary, we know that you're trying really hard. You're doing all the right things. So we know that you're, you're interested in managing your health. Let me help you just tweak that a little bit. Let's try and make it that when we do these things, like going to your doctors every three months and monitoring your blood every morning and taking your medicine every day, that it's actually doing what you want it to do. Let's have a look at your glucose numbers over the past few days or past few weeks and see, are you getting the result you want? Is this where you want to be in six months, in two years, in six years? Is Are we working to that end goal? Do you find that 80% of the people fall in one category? You know what I mean? Like, are there predominant profiles which tend to always be the big ones? Yes, that's true. In our work, for example, in ADHD, there's a couple of 
different factors. And with two factors, we're, we're explaining 50%. Most folks will have factor one and some of factor two. Let me explain what I mean by factor one or barrier one is they've, they've basically just misunderstood what ADHD is. So they need an education on this is not a behavioral condition. It is actually a biological condition. And that's a the biggest driver of discontinuation or disengagement in ADHD. Uh, about 34% of the folks who disengage, it's for that single reason. And there's another reason. Um, the second biggest reason is communication in the home, where the, the parent who's bringing the child in to the pediatrician is on board. Uh, they understand it's a biological condition. They're on board with treatment, but the other parent at home is not. So that whole conversation dynamic at home and, and who makes the decisions and, and can the, the person who brought him to the pediatrician have sufficient influence on the partner at home, that's the second biggest bucket. And between the two of those, we're explaining almost 50% of, of the folks who disengage. It sounds like one of the, the tricks to doing this well is making sure that you've got it right up front. How exactly. do you, how, you know, how do you figure out who you just articulated? Do you just interview like a certain N of, of patients and figure out where they're at and then parse them into categories? Like, how do you do that? Well, there, there is a part of the research process and tool development that requires interviewing, absolutely. But there's a huge amount of work that goes in to the process before we even speak to anyone. You know, you can end up barking up the wrong tree and end up with very little at the end of the day. For example, we know that the top two reasons cited by patients for discontinuation is side effects and cost of care. But when we model that, it actually does not produce any differentiation between those who who stay actively involved in the care and those who do not. So what I'm saying is, you know, to have a conversation and ask patients, tell me what's going on, is not going to get you to the right place. Um, we've taken an approach which is basically coming from my background. I can understand a certain amount of patient behavior that is 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 much deeper than what a patient can articulate. So I actually rely on that science to guide us. And then we'll go out and we'll do our interviews with thousands of consumers of whatever type, whether it's hypertension, COPD, 30-day hospital readmissions, or what have you. But we only start that after we've spent a long time looking at theory of behavior and discerning which would actually have application in each particular disease. You interview a patient, they're going to say something like, oh, it's side effects. I don't like the side effects or it's too expensive. I mean, they just will rattle off something. Mm -hmm. But then if you look at who said side effects, who said cost of care, who said whatever a patient would typically come up with, there's not any sort of linkage between what they said in that moment and whether or not they're adherent to therapy or what their ultimate outcomes are going to be. Right. So you've got to kind of start. I guess like it, it baffles me a little bit because like, you know, once again, if we're talking about some physiology thing, you can always, you know, find the bacteria and like you mm -hmm. can see it. How, how if someone says side effects, how do you study that and uncover the actual reason when that's not what they're saying? Is it just through really? I don't know. I just I, I, I can't I can't see it clearly. 
part of it, it comes from one of the biggest learnings is the, the, the school of knocks, right? You know, you try something and it fails. And then you look at other data, like uh, the most toxic procedure out there has one of the most highest adherence rates, and that's chemotherapy. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's poison. You know, the body reacts violently to chemotherapy, but the adherence is very, very high. So we look at things like that and we say, well, we know side effects is, is a red herring. Um, and I know from my background in, in how complex decision making is, there's no way a patient can articulate that. I mean, scientists in the field are struggling to articulate it. One of the examples I can give you that can kind of help clarify, we have different conceptualizations of, of health, sickness. And one of the ways that we make a decision to label somebody as sick are the overt symptoms of sickness. So I am a mother of five children. So quite often I have to make a determination, is my child sick today? Um, do I keep him off school or do I pack him up and send him on the bus? My concept of a sick child is a fever is the number one sign. There might not be a fever, but he could be vomiting or have a rash or diarrhea. And that's pretty much it. It's a very simple definition. There's four overt symptoms. If he doesn't have any of those, he's going to school. He can tell me he doesn't feel well and he's got a, a, a sore tummy. But if there's none of those overt symptoms, I'm putting him on the bus. Now, with ADHD, there are no overt symptoms. So my background in psychology, I know that there's a whole theory of behavior on health psychology. How does an individual label themselves or others as sick? or healthy, or attractive, or ugly? You know, where do these concepts come from? But in psychology, we can actually map those out. And we do know how somebody makes a determination of somebody sick, or healthy, or, or beautiful, or ugly. The, the brain actually has its pathways to make those decisions. With that knowledge, I generated a, a psychometric battery for ADHD, that probes on the parents' interpretation of illness, their interpretation of sickness, and how do they make a delineation between sick versus healthy child. And then we modeled, and we make the determination, not the parent, is there a statistically robust correlation between the thinking pattern and the behavior that we're observing, so, such that if a parent thinks that the child is sick when they're labeled ADHD, they will treat. But if the parent labels the child as not sick when they have ADHD, they will not treat. And we did see a very, very strong relationship in the data to that end. So now we can conclusively say that how a parent conceptualizes sickness versus health in a child has a direct consequence on how they will manage that child's behavior. I'm getting the notion that, you know, in the examples that you ha have provided, it, it has been disease specific. Mm -hmm. How much of this is transferable across disease? Or do you, you know, if I'm a provider and I'm, I've got five cost drivers, do I really need to prioritize my cost drivers and then have these conversations with a comorbid patient in some kind of sequence? Or how do you, I'm thinking very logistically here and very practically, mm -hmm. how do you manage that? You are right, Stacey. They are very disease specific. So for example, what we were just talking about in ADHD, is the child sick or is he not? That's the number one predictor of success in ADHD management. 
compare that to oncology or breast cancer. It's not even on the radar. Everybody knows that when a woman or a man has breast cancer, that there's a biological condition there. So we don't even need to have that conversation. So the the conversations that need to be had are very, very different across different diseases. Absolutely. Now, how we prioritize really is based on how consequential the disease is, whether that's in terms of life. We measure that in the healthcare industry often by qualities or quality of life year. It's a dollar value on the life of a patient. For a payer, it would also come down to a cost-driven incentive. Managing the, um, say a, a woman had diabetes and she also had a child with ADHD and she profiled as disengaged on both, it would be in the interest of the payer and the payers operating on behalf of employers to address the diabetes first. Where can people find more information if they are interested in learning more about what you are working on? We have a book on Amazon called How Patients Think. And we also have a website, howpatientsthink.org, to get more of the concepts that we've talked about today. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Andrea. Thank you very much, Stacey. It's been a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.